Thanks for listening to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation theology and history. And uh, this is Reverend Andrew Christensen, or Drew as I go by. And today I'm joined by Deaconess Ellie Kuro and also Dr. Bethany Kilcrease. Um, Deaconess Ellie Kuro is, serves as missionary care coordinator for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Office of International Mission. She serves on the Board of Higher Things, which is a Lutheran ministry to youth and young adults. Uh, Ellie writes along with other guests, including Dr. Kilpies, on their substack titled Lutheran Women on the Road, a blog and newsletter about loving God and loving neighbor and walking faithfully in this tension of Christian discipleship. I like that. Loving God and loving neighbor always sounds like good things to do on paper, but when rubber hits the road, as it often does every day, it's rather challenging and difficult for most of us, uh, at least if we're normal, right? Well, I don't know what is normal. I guess we're all... Indeed it does. Uh, if we're human, <laughs> I should say. Corrected to saying that. But uh, but I recommend our lis- listeners to check it out. You can read them at Lutheress, L-U-T-H-E-R-E-S-S dot substack dot com. What's the meaning of Lutheress? Is that like... That's a really great question. Should I do Reverend Christensen or Drew? What's that? Should I call you Reverend Christensen or Drew? Just call me Drew. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question. I guess maybe as opposed to like deacon, it's it's deaconess. So it's like instead of the rest. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm so not, it's like Kate. I did not come up with that. <laughs> yeah. We, we are actually not the brains behind that yeah, whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, another wonderful lutheran woman who's who's kind of pulled a bunch of women together and said you know let's let's try and write stuff and she she titled the blog and i'm sure she's got a very very good thoughtful reason that i'm sure she does (laughs) i just don't happen to know (laughs) i believe that is that caitlin who is in our group yeah okay all right and she is uh she is uh thanks to caitlin she's going to share this episode the recorded final product uh, through, I don't know if Lutheress, but she's going to be sharing it through through the channel. So, um, and our other guest, Dr. Bethany Kilcrease, is a professor of history at Aquinas College in Michigan, where I'm originally from, though I'm from the east side of the state. Uh, she holds a PhD in modern British history from Boston College. She specializes in British and European modern intellectual and religious history and teaches several courses Uh, on topics that fall under that uh, there at Aquinas. And uh, and of course, you said, I called Bethany for the episode. So Bethany, you are perhaps overdue to be on our show. I just have a sense that you are an Anglophile. I am an Anglophile, yeah. So, you know, I'm a Lutheran. I'm born and bred Lutheran. And yet, virtually none of my scholarship has to do with anything related to Lutheranism. (laughs) So there have been a few touch points, but... Most of it um, does not. I, I specialize in um, Anglicanism. 
actual Catholicism and English Roman Catholicism. Yes, uh, we, we, as I said, you are long overdue to be on the show. Of course, um, uh, you're probably more of an Anglophile than I am, even though I'm the Anglican here. Um, and uh, and um, you're such a serious historian that this podcast, I mean, you should have had on because originally we we were conceived of as a historical theology podcast and in many ways we still keep that angle as the primary way of going about how we explore these topics but um and of course bethany uh, or sorry dr kilcrease may sound familiar to our listeners we've had the other dr kilcrease of course on the podcast mr doctor that's how we differentiate them for our mr doctor because he's nice here so he's mr dr kilcrease and i'm mrs dr kilcrease so they put that on papers they put that on papers? They do, yeah. Nice. Uh, well, of course, this is Mrs. Doctor's first time. But Mr. Doctor's been on the podcast twice, including a very first episode, uh, mm-hmm. which since has been reposted, so it won't show up as the first if you go and scroll through our episodes. But um, uh, the other Dr. Cookies, Bethany's lesser half, uh, don't tell him I said that, but I'll edit that out, <laughs> came on for both an episode discussing Protestant scholasticism of the 17th century. And he did an episode on the the Luther Zwingli debate on the on the Eucharist. So, but Ellie and Bethany, I'm delighted to have you both on. Uh, so thank you for being here. So uh, before we get into anything, I've I've talked with Bethany here and there, but uh, by way of knowing Jack, like I mentioned, and being on social media together, but we don't um, know each other, Ellie. And I'm curious about your title of deaconess, uh, what that entails. Um, what led to this calling for you? I mean, I grew up Missouri Synod as a, I was very young. I don't remember deaconesses, but uh, what, what, what is that? What does it entail? And how did you get into that? Yeah. Um, short answer is uh, deaconesses typically serve alongside word, word and sacrament ministry um, as the um, servants of mercy within the church. And that can look all the different ways that mercy can look in the church. Um, and, um, so there's deaconesses that serve in a wide variety of ways. Um, you know, we're theologically trained, um, and, you know, at the seminaries and, um, you know, trained to, you know, bring those works of mercy, um, to those in need, you know, with, you know, theological legs on that. Um, so me specifically, I, um, didn't grow up Lutheran. I, um, actually didn't grow up in the church at all, but um, was an evangelical for a while and decided that I wanted to go to seminary. And I um, went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and um, got an MA in church history and an MA in theology and um, kind of started out Southern Baptist and came out the other side Lutheran. And I think I'm probably the only person that's (laughs) done that journey. I didn't know that, and I thought in the, you, but I did not know you were Southern Baptist at one. I, I was Assemblies of God before that, so wow. I, I, think, I think I knew that, but I didn't know there was a there was a yeah. hot minute when you were Southern Baptist. Yeah, so I was Southern Baptist for a hot minute, and um, yeah, so came out the other side Lutheran, and had you know in the process started attending a Lutheran church, and um, pastor at home was like, because I was kind of like I don't know what to do with myself now because you know I was thinking of ways to serve in the church, but didn't know exactly what that looked like for Lutherans. And he was like, have you heard about deaconesses? And um, had um, sort of hooked me up with the seminary 
in Fort Wayne that had just started a distance Deaconess program. And so I um, went through their Deaconess program as well um, to get MA number three. <laughs> MA number um, three. So it's like basically, it's like a doctorate. It is, yeah. It is not. It is not. Because the two masters make a doctorate. And then she's got the the third one on top of it. No, 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 no. (laughs) That's what I'm sitting here. It's like, why am I in this room? Uh, In this room, I have no doctorate either. And we'll see. I may end up as an ABD. All but dissertation. I know so many clergy with ABDs. <laughs> anyway, so, there's so uh, many people with ABDs. What's that? There's a lot of people with ABDs. So. There are lots of people. So, in yeah, it's, it's a very popular degree. It is right. <laughs> lots of things sound good in the beginning. But yeah. No, my mind's going fine-ish. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I mean, that's great. I mean, I didn't know all that. That's really helpful background and kind of makes sense into like. You, you definitely have something to weigh in and reading a book like the book we're going to be talking about by Beth Allison Barr. Um, so each of you brings like a wealth and knowledge of experience. I'm sure we could talk about any number of a variety of things for, for an episode. And I'm all game for doing that again in the future. Um, but the reason why we're, we're why both y'all are here tonight is that you each wrote, well, you wrote together a review, which was in part a critique of the best-selling book from Christian author Beth Allison Barr, and that book being titled The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. And of course, based on that title alone, we can imagine that this book deals with an issue that can be controversial, can be a controversial issue in the church. Mm-hmm. And judging by its title, its thesis is definitely making a claim, perhaps an indicting claim for one, and, and a and a prescriptive way forward. It's it's one of those kinds of books. It's it's not a dispassionate book by by any means. Sure. Uh, unlike some of the books we probably read, because especially having a scholarly streak, we tend to maybe read some dry, uh, dispassionate stuff. But there were things y'all both liked about the book, and things you uh, both didn't like. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into the details of your review momentarily. But can you um, offer up kind of a sketch of the main argument of the book and, and what Barr was going for here. Um, yeah, I mean, you do say, I do want to quote, pull a quote from your review. You do say in your review of the book that, quote, her argument that biblical womanhood, which tells women they must be domestic, housebound, and married mothers at the expense of other vocations is important and prophetic. As such, her book deserves to be widely read throughout the church. She demonstrates that the way we often read even the Bible through a patriarchal lens has led the church to discount the significance of named women in the Bible, including Mary Magdalene, Phoebe, and Junia. Moreover, the chapters on the history of women in the church during the Middle Ages and Reformation period are alone uh, with the cost of admission. I may have misquoted that. Her chapter on the Reformation, for example, helps explain why Katharina von Bora, Luther, died impoverished, her tragedy extended beyond an individual failure on the part of the church. Rather, it was a product of a newly constructed economic system that limited women's opportunities outside the home, unquote. So you found the value where it was to be found, uh, as as you saw it. Um, But give us a sketch. Uh, What's it about? And um, yeah. Sure. Well, Ellie, do you want uh, me to? Go for it. 
please. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, it's a really interesting um, book, like you say. And the interesting thing about it is that people bought it for one because it's <laughs> by a uh, woman who is a really um, profound and serious scholar uh, specializing in um, women's European history, mostly medieval English, uh, early modern English history, and also church history. Um, and like you say, those books are, they can be pretty dry, let's be real, and kind of jargon-filled and stuff like that. <clears throat> and so uh, what she's done here is she's combined some of her expertise in those areas with a lot of personal experience. Being a uh, female professor at uh, Baylor, where she is a historian, I think she was a dean for a little while too, although maybe don't quote me on that. Uh, and her experience as being the wife of a uh, youth youth pastor, although I believe he is no longer. I think he's gone on to be a sole pastor now, at least not in your head. So I'm going to assume that that that's right. And so what she's done is she's taken arguments and some evidence that normally only um, the people who are used to slogging through really boring academic books would look at and made it accessible both to those types and brought a lot of different streams together, but also made it accessible to kind of the average uh, pew sitter who might want to pick this up. And you can see that in the fact that, I mean, it's still, so this is one, I think like 21 months out since it's been published. And, you know, I meant to look at, at the Amazon, it kind of, you know, best, is this a top seller and whatever, but I bet it's, I bet if I did, it would still be up there pretty high. I remember it being huge. I mean, Christianity yeah. Today ran articles. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And oh, she was interviewed that by doesn't happen to everyone. too, I think. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it hit mainstream, like oh, yeah. not even just mainstream mm -hmm. Christianity, but I mean, like NPR and folks like that were really um, picking it up as well. Um, right. Yeah, and that so. never happens to like medievalists, right? Right. <laughs> it's really, yeah. um, so I guess that's maybe the backstory to why you know, this is a significant book and why it's kind of uh, blown up in that way. I don't know, Ellie, if you want to jump in and say a little bit more about the book's uh, argument. Then. Yeah, well, and she, um, you know, as, as Bethany was kind of saying, you know, she kind of frames it around sort of her personal sort of story and journeying through a lot of this. So you kind of have this kind of back and forth where she'll have sort of an entry point of, you know, I was doing the dishes one day and kind right. of had this thought mm -hmm. and then um, kind of her um, you know, historical slash theological evaluation of kind of that thought, uh, which makes it super accessible. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of straddles that really well in, in, in being a serious scholar, um, actually. And then, um, but, you know, creating something that anybody can pick up that, um, to, to get a sense of some of these arguments repackaged in a way that, um, you know, historians look at it and kind of recognize the arguments and um, somebody who's totally unfamiliar with, I never knew that. Um, that's really neat. So, mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, it's important to know uh, is that both of you are coming to this work from, from bar, from, from a certain perspective, you both are confessional Lutherans uh, in a church body that has um, an understanding that sex or gender, which of course, I know there is a distinction between the two, but I'm not going to go down the road of that. Our culture currently makes an awful lot of that distinction that I don't necessarily find helpful. But all this to say is that y'all's church body of LCMS has an understanding, especially 
uh, in regard to ordained pastoral ministry in the distinction from any ministry of a baptized person, that there are things that men are fit for or designed for and things that women are fit for, meant for, designed for. And of course, in today's climate, once we even get into that type of discussion, the temperature can be raised a bit. But, uh, you know, I think we're all low temp here. Uh, James, a frequent co-host, uh, who he, he recently preached at my installation service um, at the church. I, I very recently have started serving as rector. And, and while he kept his focus on the gospel for the majority of the sermon, he did mention in the beginning how, you know, he knows me and what our relationship is, what brought him to preach on this occasion. And he mentioned, you know, Father Drew runs a podcast. And one of the great things he does on that is he brings people together. So I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but, and he says he brings people together, even people with different views. And, and that's because I like that. I find the value in that. And as we all know, I just, um, you know, as we talked in the pre-show, I serve an ordained ministry in the Episcopal Church, which has for several decades ordained women. Um, this isn't true everywhere, um, as you know, in the Anglican communion, but it is for us in the Episcopal Church. Now, I grew up uh, Lutheran, Missouri Synod, and when I became Episcopalian when I was rather young, it wasn't over any kind of social issue like that. Um, I never thought about women ordination or, or, you know, when I sat in the pews as growing up in the Missouri Synod, I never looked up there and looked at the pastor. I never thought to myself, well, why isn't it a woman up there? You know, I never thought that way. And then likewise, when I became an Episcopalian uh, and we had women priests, like, you know, it was, it was, you know, not everywhere was common. I, I never wondered, you know, why is there a woman up there? instead of a man. I never wondered that either. I mean, it was just the way it is, but for both, both, you know, it's just the way it is. Uh, so by default, I wasn't, uh, and I'm still not opposed to women's ordination. I have been blessed to have women colleagues in ordained ministry whom from my experience were, were solid pastoral people. Uh, I know that's perhaps not a theological justification for it, but, but all to say is women's ordination was never really, um, a, a something I was going to die on a hill on one way over another. Uh, and, and then when I dabbled into what certain biblical scholars and theologians had to say on it and representatives from either side, um, I'm still not convinced that, um, that there's a justification for male only priesthood. And we can get into that. That's not really here or there. I'm really interested in hearing your perspective and, and being like that, that, like I said, that there is an understanding that men and women can share in ministry yet in distinct ways in your church body. It seems to me your understanding on this matter uh, is different from the type of understanding that Beth Allison Barr fled from, the, the, the type of complementarianism, as it's called, that you do find in a lot of conservative American evangelicalism, uh, or at least the part of the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, that Barr described her disillusionment with. I, you know, I think confessional Lutherans or the Roman Catholic Church are examples of church bodies that have an understanding that men and women share in the ministry of the gospel yet in different ways. Uh, they base their understandings, though, on something that is different from the type of perhaps rigid uh, and excessive forms of maybe gender role assignments or type of more extreme subjugation of women that you that you will find in parts of American evangelicalism. Um, so uh, help me with what the, uh, with the nuance involved here, because I think we, a lot of our secular, secular culture 
uh, just looks from the outside and see, oh, Catholics, Baptists, Missouri Synod, they, they all have just, they, all just male pastors. It's all just because they're sexist or whatever. That's yeah. not true, Drew. They don't know who we are, so they're not saying. They're just saying yeah. they're Baptists. They, they, they don't even, yeah, you're right. They don't, even know those, they don't even know those labels, right? But they just see yeah. all Christians as this just amalgamation of sexist yeah. people or something. But but what's with there's nuance involved here because it's like uh, am i right to say that you're you, you would not have like subscribed to the type of thing the christianity that beth bar fled from you would not have subscribed to that type of complementarianism right or the way it was at least you know what turned yeah. i mean the complementarian egalitarian categories are categories that are imported from um wayne grudem and john piper i mean they're completely made up categories mm -hmm. that evangelicals have just you know have been drinking so deeply from that they've just assumed those two categories and that either or and i think bethany and i both would say i kind of reject those categories pretty right. much entirely mm -hmm. um because and some of that stems from having different understandings of the office of the ministry and um as, as opposed to seeing it as a leadership role which is sort of what often happens with within evangelicalism when you get these conversations about um women serving in the office of the ministry is it's like we look in the bible and you see women in leadership roles and it's like well there you go you can have female pastors because women were leading and it's like yeah but i think our response would be but they're not in the office of the ministry they're not in the office of the pastor um and whereas if you're in a um in a ecclesiastical setting that has kind of collapsed all of those distinctions, you see the person who's in charge, that's the pastor. And if that can't be a woman, it has to be a man. It's then, then every, everybody else comes in in line behind his authority as the boss. And so kind of building systems in terms of, you know, who's in charge in the room and, um, or if we're all just egalitarians versus, you know, for Lutherans, it's who has the office of the proclamation of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. We're not really asking who's in charge so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess one thing I would just kind of throw in there too, just in terms of kind of a mutual understanding. I think the first thing you said, Drew, and I, I just took a couple of notes on it was uh, that there's this view <clears throat> that perhaps confessional Lutherans have that women are somehow not um, quote fit or designed for uh, the office of the ministry, which is actually not a view that we would hold. There might be some people who do hold that, unfortunately, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, but that's actually not our view. Um, women are fit in the sense of, you know, like you say, functionally, um, very fine people. Uh, Pastorally speaking, I know I've personally been blessed a great deal by close friendships with um, female pastors. Uh, so that's certainly not um, at issue. At issue to us to go back to what Ellie had said is more: is there a specific calling that we can look to for a divinely um, ordained office of the ministry? And with le less seen in a role of kind of leadership and authority, and uh, more in terms of <clears throat> some other functions, uh, which to to get back to the book, I guess, is why if you're coming at it from our perspective, a lot of the argument I look at it and I say you're totally right. Like I don't disagree with 
hardly any of this, but it's also MOOC, I guess. So yes, I'm all of the stuff with um, Phoebe and Junia as an apostle. Yes, love it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I being in, love it, right? But the distinction is that there's have people who are leaders, but haven't necessarily, to our understanding, been called to that particular uh, role. So she makes a lot of hay of, for example, the fact that Mary Magdalene, really important figure, right? And actually, after the book was published, there was an article by somebody else that she uh, spent a lot of time interacting with on Twitter about perhaps uh, there was some um, messing around going on with manuscripts of the Gospel of John where Mary Magdalene mm. edited out and they put in Martha. And I was like, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. But the, the point is, actually, from my perspective, the more the more importance you put on those figures, the more it actually disproves her case. Because I would say, well, clearly, Jesus was no uh, misogynist. He didn't think that women were unfit or not designed for anything. And yet, we'd go back and look at the call of the 12 apostles and say, well, here's somebody who is very in the circle, inner circle, Mary Magdalene. And yet, how weird that she wasn't, wasn't called in that way. Um, so to a degree, some of the arguments, they're interesting, but because she has a functionalist view of the ministry as a Baptist, and because we don't, it's, and Roman Catholics don't either, right? It's a little bit beside the point. So, I mean, I think when when you see the Southern Baptist Convention and others barring women from the Office of Ministries for different reasons than, um, than how we would think of that. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so because you say the Lutheran understanding is 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 different from a mere functional view of ordain the the call ordained office but it's definitely not the catholic view though or the roman catholic view which is um from what i understand very ontological sacrificial nature of the priesthood so kind of kind of tell what is the, the confessional lutheran understanding of the ordained the office of ordained ministry well i can say a little bit the Roman Catholic view. Um, uh, I'll leave that up to Ellie. I mean, I, I do want to just really highlight the fact, okay, before we get blowback on the internet, which is going to happen, okay, that we are not uh, theologians or public teachers of the church and are not holding ourselves up as such uh, in, in, in that manner. But if you look, you know, historically at the development of ideas of ordination and things like this, the view that Rome has now comes out of the North African tradition in particular, uh, back in the patristic period. And they do have a view that ordination will leave an indelible ontological mark on an individual and that women are therefore uh, ontologically incapable of receiving this mark, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there is an ontology issue there, which there's been, I haven't read it, but a recent book, I think it's called like Icons of Christ, maybe something. Is that it? And it goes into the situation, well, how do we, you know, what are the implications of that now that I think virtually everybody would hold, although not some out there, there are a few, but most people would hold that women and men are ontologically uh, equal. What difference does this make then in terms of 
um, that belief. Uh, but in any case, that would be the Roman Catholic view. Um, I could say something about the Lutheran view, but I'll maybe punt off to Ellie saying that's the Roman Catholic view of it. Yeah, and, um, you know, Lutherans is <laughs> not so much magic ordination powers, <laughs> um, more, um, you know, a, 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 the approval, um, intermediate call by um, another body to the office of the ministry. And that's the, um, you know, what what's the word I'm reaching for? My mind just won't. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, so it's it's the... It's not the case that um, there's an ontological difference, but yeah. the case is that rather than something you know inside of you changing, it's that God's word has put you into a specific office. Um, and there's been some debate in Lutheran history over whether that is, you know, does that take place via um, the call of uh, pastors in some kind of, um, you know, you can think about that in different ways, um, apostolic yeah. succession of doctrine and then the pastors are, you know, doing this. Or to what extent, or is it is it just the congregation who issues the call, which then through that word, it puts the person into a specific office, right? So the, the emphasis, and I'm probably echoing my husband a little bit here, is much more for Lutherans on the external word, word. than yeah. through the congregation um, and, and or uh, probably just and um, other members of the pastor, the ordained pastorate calling somebody into uh, this specific role, uh, which Jesus has then called um, some men who are called to this too, and not most men, obviously, like the vast majority, definitely, <laughs> the vast majority. but uh, the emphasis would be there as opposed to then via ordination, there's a change um, somehow in the character of the person, which does not uh, dissipate, right? Even if you are um, defrocked or something, you still would bear the indelible mark of the priesthood. You would just not be able to confect the uh, office, uh, the sacrifice of the mass anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, so, you know, our, our denomination calls through congregations, but we have complete fellowship with other denominations that have, you know, more of an episcopacy and have bishops and such. And so, you know, they... Um, you know, they have their kind of ordination process that, you know, works that way. And we're kind of like, yeah, you know, the point is, as Bethany noted, is, is you know, the, the calling through, you know, the external word, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to sort of much more of a functionalist view like um, um, Beth Allison Barr, where, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of the, the one who's in charge and has decided that, you know, you're going to be the person that's, you know, going to preach and lead the Bible study and whatever, and, you know, folks that are there like, okay, that works for us. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I did just to kind of pick up on that to get back to some of what she says about, um, and I, I think these are by far, I don't want to, you know, I think this is a really good book. I do have, um, I think I would like people to read it. I do have some reservations, um, obviously, but um, I don't want to make it seem too much like I have all these criticisms or something good to say here. But um, I, I would say one concern that I think both of us had reading it was that, and you know, she is a specialist in the Middle Ages and um, the early modern period. But she's also um, somebody who is a, a a Baptist, right, and lives in a ministerial household. And that then uh, there is this um, 
it's, I wouldn't even say latent to this maybe explicit activist component to the work. And I think maybe as a result of that, she's reading some of her own Baptist ecclesiology back into mm -hmm. the, the Middle Ages, early modern period, when she's talking about these figures. And so she'll say things about, um, um, you know, Genevieve or um, Hildegard Klimping or people like this, and about, you know, well, they're, they're basically acting as priests or bishops, or one was even accidentally... <laughs> Ordained Brit, was it Bridget who was Bridget accidentally was ordained? ordained. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. well, that's very strange. Um, but <laughs> the point, you know, and so, you know, therefore, well, okay, but the point is, is that it's not so much, look what people did in the past until so they can do it in the present. Well, no, in the past, you know, they wouldn't, no, nobody had a confusion here. They would have said, well, even if somebody was somehow accidentally ordained, it didn't take because you were not ontologically capable of bearing this indelible mark so there's yeah, I, mean, I think kind of reading back into it i mean hildegard would never have thought of herself as yeah, a priest no. and she would never have been you know serving at mass and would would i mean that would have been a clear line for her mm -hmm. um I, I i don't think you can argue historically that you know she was de facto a priest because of her work in the church mm -hmm. Well, here's, yeah. Unless so, you're a Baptist. <laughs> so, okay, right. So, I mean, so that, that's the other thing is that there's this conflation of, you know, preaching, right, with um, then the ordained ministry. And if you're perhaps a Baptist, this works, right? But if you are a Roman Catholic or if you are a confessional Lutheran, um, it doesn't work because there's other stuff going on here. And like we would say, anybody can preach, right, in the sense of, the mutual consolation um, of the brethren, right? So you can mm -hmm. certainly uh, preach the gospel in that sense to your friends, colleagues, um, other people, you know, all of that, but that's not the same as having a public call to the office of the ministry. So is Hildegard doing that? Yeah, but mm -hmm. is she doing the other thing? No. And I think one thing that you see in here, perhaps, is that women do have, I think, in, more freedom in some ways in the in the middle ages than they might in modern I don't, i'm not a baptist i shouldn't maybe put words into their mouth but in perhaps present day some evangelical baptist circles to do more public roles and things like this in leadership positions and i would argue that's because there's a really clear line there's no worry that somehow anybody would mistake what these women are doing for uh, the opposite of the priesthood, right? And so therefore, there's actually a lot more freedom to do things. And so when you get into periods, I would say like right now, actually, where there's a lot more fear about the possibility of loosey-goosey gender stuff or mixing or, you know, things like this, then that's actually going to cause people to draw harder lines mm. and to try and maintain some level of uh, purity. This is like mary douglas right? yeah the, the the modern oh, culture mary wars douglas. yeah the modern culture wars complicate things in ways right. that the medieval content yeah i hear you um so one of the things from Barr's book um you know and i agreed with a significant amount of the things she had to say but also like you get in some when you get into argumentative literature especially like popular argumentative literature 
uh, that's criticizing and combating a certain viewpoint that they're trying to persuade you is a no-go. Um, straw men, straw mans do tend to come out, right? And and not just straw mans, but even like sloppy arguments. Um, I found a lot of what she said in the first chapter, and I enjoyed significant portions of the rest of the book, but it was that first chapter that was really for me, like, uh, it was really for me to get through that, at least. Um, I, I, I just, I, I feel like I kept finding straw man arguments or, and just not good argumentation. And, and one was the, and you see this everywhere, was, was maybe I shouldn't bring this up because I don't like getting like too socio-political-ish, but um, was the gender wage gap. Oh, that, well. it, <laughs> in comparison to I men, remember her writing about that. I don't remember that. <laughs> Clearly, it just blew past me. Oh, it's, it's in the first chapter. Yeah, well, it's she just. Well, and it was of... almost two years ago we wrote this review. Like <laughs> Bethany and I were talking the other night. I was like, I have to remember what we even wrote. <laughs> well, see, I should have got you. I should have got you all on two years ago. Would have <laughs> be very <laughs> relevant right now. Um, but like. <laughs> She talks about the wage gap and like in comparison to men, women only makes her it's it's the yeah. familiar talking point we hear we hear a lot. Um the the 70 cents sure. um, on the men's nice. dollar. Um and that of course is not really stood up under scrutiny. I mean, if you're just taking all median salaries from everywhere, not factoring a whole bunch of other factors like different fields and how you see the general tendency in the overall workforce that often men and women are attracted to different things. Um that shouldn't be controversial. It's an observation, but it is kind of, I guess, to bring that up, you know, um, and I guess we can have initiatives to try to change that, but like people are going to do what they're drawn to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and dare we say, not all that's environmental part of that could be biological, but, you know, but anyways, like I said, things that shouldn't be controversial, but they are, um, you know, I, I remember like a, uh, when, when I was in college, I did, my minor was in youth services and, um, I remember in the tech, which was mainly entailed like social work classes. And I remember in like one of these tech, and this is a mainstream textbook at the state university that I went to. Um, it talked about how to work with children that were like, had been abused or had gone through trauma. And it, and it recommended these are kind of different ways. You have to dress it with a little girl as opposed to a little boy, right? It was just like a given fact, right? Um, because, um, and not not others exceptions but there are kind of general tendencies you can see in the way that these the, the kids of the different biological sexes can uh take you know uh take you know to, to care for them so but you know but anyways um i don't know i just found that kind of um problematic but also like um another part in that first chapter that i just found kind of problematic was that sh she went to make an argument that um I don't know, I guess she, and again, I, I know you, you guys don't know, or you gals, sorry, I don't even buy the, um, whatever, y'all, I should say, I, I, should, I, should, worse. I should, I should keep to my, uh, Southern, um, y'all, um, I, I know you even have like issues with the category, categories of patriarchy and complementary, complementarianism, but she, she kind of makes an argument saying they're basically the same things. And it just, it really seemed sweeping to me, some of the arguments I found, especially in the first chapter. Um, and it didn't get into like that there are different shades to these concepts, right? Like I found like um, in Michael Bird, the, you know, the biblical scholar, the evangelical mm -hmm. biblical scholar who I found him sort of more, a lot more helpful on this. He, he gives a full chart in his book uh, 
Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Hearcuts, which, by the way, it's a book where he argues his stance in that of the, you know, egalitarian position of men and women in equal ministry, which is, you know, the 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 stance I hold. But but um, but he he in doing so, he was like more careful. Like he didn't vilify complementarianism and notes that there are shades to it. You can have what like what he would call moderate complementarian, where women are encouraged to engage in certain types of ministries. Uh, uh, in contrast to hi- hierarchical complementarianism, um, where you know their women are prohibited from types of ministries that violate um, uh, uh, things that they read, uh, Paul is uh, that they claim Paul speaks to, uh, that is instated by God in the orders creation. But it, it but anyway, I'm just saying, like it isn't, didn't seem like there were any of those distinctions in Barr's work, um, and for maybe to be fair, Barr may not just see that as a real distinction, uh, but it just seemed sweeping overall and not really to, it didn't really seek to understand something on its own grounds before um, being critical of it. I don't know if you, you found straw men as well or anything like that. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of what I found in it though, but yeah, I haven't I haven't read Bird's book. I actually have that book, but I have not yet read it. It's a very <laughs> short read. I, I yeah, like uh, but I'm familiar with some of his work on this, and I've actually yeah I've found him much more nuanced. Um, I mean, I think I think Barr's reacting to a lot in in the book, and the book is kind of her processing and reacting to a lot of things. And you know, I don't want to. I don't want to anal- overanalyze kind of where she was at, but I, you know, as we all know, sometimes when you have a negative experience with something, it becomes the lens through which you see everything. And there is certainly this element of like, everything is patriarchy. And so, you know, kind of this constant reacting to seeing everything as patriarchy and, um, and, and that, you know, that can certainly get a bit overblown. Um, I, I, there, there's, there's, there, I suppose room to talk about a spectrum of complementarianism because honestly, when you say complementarian, different people mean different things. Right. I see, like, and it's really be, important yeah. to define those terms. Same with patriarchy too. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot within there that it's it needs a lot of unpacking. I right. I just don't think she did the unpacking of it. She you know? she probably didn't. And um, I mean, just as, you know, some people will say, you know, egalitarians view, you know, men and women is completely interchangeable and they're exactly the same. And there's, I'm sure there's some egalitarians that think that there's, and there's some that, you know, would say, no, absolutely. Men and women are distinct and, you know, have different gifts and abilities and different tendencies and everything else and would have no problem conceding that. Um, and, and, and so I'm wondering if there's a little bit more middle ground there than <laughs> there's right. more of a Venn diagram there, perhaps than people appreciate. Again, my rejection of kind of both of these is, is, you know, kind of distinct categories. I think that there's probably room for them to interact with each other a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, she definitely, I think probably, especially at this point, would see kind of anything on that spectrum of patriarchy, uh, on spectrum of um, complementarianism as, as absolutely patriarchy and absolutely wrong. And, you know, the, I think would see the goal as moving much more, more towards an egalitarian, you know, pure egalitarianism and however we can do that. I think she would see that as, as, as laudable, you know, however she would want to define that. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think this is just something we were talking about on the phone yesterday, Ellie, which is that, um, and I mean, I want to be, again, absolutely um, respectful to um, Dr. Barr and, and her position, mm -hmm. but it, it does seem like from an outsider perspective, I mean, she's really public on social media. She, she, she tweets a lot, you know, and so <clears throat> compared to where she was with the book, if you kind of go across time to now, she does seem to, from my perspective at least, have become much more um, strident in terms of her just the complete rejection of anybody who she would consider to be um, quote unquote complementarian, um, which I know she would put me into that category, even though I would reject it for, my, for myself, but um, and anybody who um, does not think women's ordination is possible, which I would put myself in that category as automatically, um, you know, participating either wittingly or unwittingly, perhaps living under this, you know, false consciousness, uh, contributing to the subjugation of, of women, right, in this, in this way. And um, so I do think that might actually hurt her position in some ways, because I think that there are a lot of good takeaways here. But if you're going to really push that hard, against these perceived enemies, people are going to miss any of the good kind of nuances and you know, things they can right. take out of the book with um, some discernment. Um, I do just want to say, though, speaking of, of straw men, I won a couple things in the book, though, towards the end, and again, Ellie and I talked about this last night, the um, inerrancy part, I thought, was pretty problematic um, from at least a confessional Lutheran perspective. Um, and you know, I, I would say that just, I think, you know, again, I'm not, I mean, maybe you can speak this better than me, Ellie, but I don't think this is, or I guess I think this is probably maybe the typical evangelical Baptist view of inerrancy, but it's really not uh, the confessional Lutheran view, um, it might be in the pews, but really, really it shouldn't be, which is that, you know, the Bible is inerrant, right, and so therefore you build all of your beliefs on that, and so then if you discover, lo and behold, Paul was wrong about what he said about women, or not wrong, but we've been misinterpreting it and we've using these passages as sticks to beat people with the stick of inerrancy, right? That uh, then all your whole belief system collapses, right? And so inerrancy has been used to kind of keep women down. Um, you know, in terms of the, the term inerrancy, as we would understand it, right? It's, it's more the case that it's like the icing on the cake, you know? So we believe in, Jesus by virtue of his resurrection and being called to the faith through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus affirms the Holy Scripture. And so therefore we believe it must be inerrant, right? But it's it's kind of in reverse, right? So she's arguing against a, a position that isn't necessarily one everybody associates with the word inerrancy. And I get that it's used differently in different yeah well and i think she's arguing against sometimes people think that the interpretation is inerrant mm -hmm. and um and 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 have kind of enshrined a particular interpretation of a text as 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 the inerrant interpretation of a text and um and so she's reacting against a lot of that as well is is like well if you know if i don't think this interpretation is correct then i must not think inerrancy is correct and she i mean she kind of does some some you know historical dancing around that but it's like as bethany said there's 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 different ways of understanding 
inerrancy. And if you, you know, if you start with Jesus and it's, it's true because he rose from the dead and we trust him and his word. And, and that's your starting place. And then that gives you some freedom to kind of wrestle with the text mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, you know, it's a caricature, but, you know, it dropped down out of the sky and this is absolutely what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's often this view of wanting to kind of treat the scriptures like you're the first person sitting there reading it by yourself. And um, as opposed to, you know, reading it in communion with the saints that have gone before us and the church that we're, um, we're engaged in now and having, you know, a community kind of reading of the text mm-hmm. and, and wrestling with it with each other. That is not, um, you know, if you're, if you're asking questions about the interpretation, that itself is not a questioning of inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think she kind of seems to assume that. That's yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one big hang up, uh, when you turn to Bart, and this does involve, you know, uh, your church body's understanding, um, turning to Bart's historical treatment um something you pointed out in your review of her historical treatment um and again i mean like you both said bar is an excellent historian and medievalist in many rights um i remember years ago her contribution to the book martin luther in context um which i rented i don't own it so i i wish i had it i could pull it out because i couldn't find the article online but she contributed a chapter about luther and saint anne of course saint anne being the you know who luther prayed to during a thunderstorm and um have any of you read that article no i haven't Um, it's been a while and i but it's in the book about luther in context but um but it was i find at the time at least when i read it really great i mean i've done more theological study since and i'd have to like look back at it to see you know if it you know kind of stands up to what other voices i've you know heard from is said about either luther's development or or, or whatever but but anyway on the topic of luther and, and it wouldn't be a doth protest episode if luther was not at least mentioned it's kind of inevitable he's on our he's one of our mascots i'm cramming around the cover of the podcast art if you didn't see it um so um but bar in this book speaks she devotes i think an entire chapter to the reformation mm-hmm. right that's its effect on women sorry i thought that was a really good chapter okay yeah um yeah that one and the one in the middle ages yeah what are the strengths of it before we get into what i thought what i found in your review is your hang-up about it with luther and Lenny. What, what what were the strengths of the reformation chapter for that well i mean, I, I think it brings up <laughs> things that you know i mean i will say one thing one thing you know as you know as a historian there there wasn't really aside from some very specific stuff about the english middle ages and john murk and sermons and i know she specializes in this there wasn't anything new to me in the book right so right. it's stuff. that tends to be what happens with popular books once you've <laughs> well, you know, just like it, i know all this i know all this i know all this like yeah, you feel like you're wasting your no, time I mean, <laughs> What she did was she did a really good job of bringing different streams of stuff together, you know, in a way that was still scholarly, Mm -hmm. right? And maybe could give it a new interpretation and then make it accessible to people. And that's an incredible accomplishment. I don't want to in any way um, belittle that. Um, But, you know, having said that, I mean, so, I mean, some things that I liked about it was that she brought out for people that, yeah, you know, the Reformation actually wasn't all good for women in a lot of ways. Um, In some ways, women did have more, today, we might talk about it as career, but I mean, you know, more vocation options 
um, in the Middle Ages. And as a result of some factors in the Reformation, we do get what she's talking about as biblical womanhood, which is this kind of cult of domesticity that arises after the Reformation. I think she has a line where she talks about, and I think we quoted in the review, where she talks about how for women, the um, the priest is replaced by the husband in the household or something like that. And so the place of the, of the woman becomes, which as a, she has a pious uh, Christian woman to, to be the spouse uh, bearing children, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, wonderful vocation. Again, I, you know, we're both mothers, so neither of us <clears throat> obviously would want to in any way um, belittle that either. <clears throat> but it does narrow the field a little bit in terms of uh, various uh, monastic options or things like this um, for women. So she does do a good job of bringing that out, that women's roles are to a degree um, somewhat narrowed at that point. And that's the beginning of this, what she calls it like the Protestant cult of domesticity that is just increased with industrial and economic changes that are happening, changes in the economy, which brings people from working, um, you know, the the man is increasingly working outside and the women are working more in the home as opposed to some more um, traditional economic systems. And these are more separated, right? And this combines with the emphasis on um, the wife as the, um, the sorry, the, the woman as the wife and the mother. And that's the, the pious ideal. And we get this cult of domesticity, right? So she does a good job showing the historical roots of that. Okay, going mm-hmm. back to the Reformation. Yeah. So, yeah, I have no. Um, well, I want to I want to uh, pick up on that note in like uh, in the next uh, in a moment because um, uh, as far as like the modern era and the 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 industrial and post industrial period and how much that how much we don't even realize we're um, conditioned by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you you did mention um, in your review. I'll I'll just quote it. Luther's view on on women is more complicated than Barr allows for, unquote. What does Barr say about Luther, and what is it, do you think, that her work was missing in that? I don't actually remember what she said about Luther, but I'm going to take a guess. (laughs) Do you remember exactly what she said about Luther? I think I do remember what we're saying she said about Luther, so I can... can I'm, I'm really sorry. Why don't you? Why don't you do you, and then I'll do me, and then we'll see what we come up, what we come up with. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna guess that. She, um, oh, I, I, I feel bad because I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I'm gonna guess that you know, you know. We're sorry, we, Beth Allison Barr, if you hear this. <laughs> I'm sure her, she's not gonna <laughs> hear this. I'm sure she has <laughs> better <laughs> things to do. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you know, often, don't you know, that. yeah, is is. Um, you know, people tend to either, you know, Luther, the raging misogynist or Luther, you know, the complete liberator of all things and all women and everything else. And, you know, he, he tends to kind of live in these two polar opposites. And he's he's kind of all over the place on a lot of things. And he's kind of all over the place with women. He's written some wonderful, amazing things about women. And he's written some things about women. It's like, really? Come on, mm-hmm. dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It applies to a lot that Luther wrote in a lot of times. Exactly. I mean, this is Luther. Yeah. I mean, you you can read him on ecclesiology, and he sometimes he sounds like you know a house church Baptist, and there's other times he sounds like you know he sounds thoroughly Catholic, and you know he can. It depends on who's who he's interacting with. It depends on what he's reacting to. It depends on the year 
the mm-hmm. year is really important. Right. Yeah. Does he have gout? Does he not have gout? Right. Yeah. Right. Is his tinnitus acting up? Right. We don't know. Right. Um, yeah. No, kidney I, stones I, today. Right. <laughs> right. And that's so true. I mean, it's and, right. and Lutherans will be the first to to uh, contend if they're a good Lutheran that Luther is not the Pope. He's not an infallible source of. Oh, he's <laughs> always not. He, he's so. the as we put up. Uh, pointed out on this podcast um um his theology usually meets the occasion right he, he's the, the as he's been called the occasionalist theologian and so um and and there is a development um like like it is for all the great thinkers of any era there's a development of thought i mean are we talking about 1520 1530 um but i, I you did um I, you cited in your review uh a dissertation I'm really interested in reading. I don't know how to pronounce this person's name. Uh, her name's S-I-N-I, Nicola. Uh, yeah. In our, yeah, the, the, it's, the title's In Our Body, the, In Our Body, the Scripture Becomes Fulfilled, a gendered bodiless, a gendered bodily, bodiliness and the making of the gender system in Martin Luther's anthropology from yeah. 1520 to 1530. That sounded really fascinating, I guess, out of the Helsinki, the University no, of Helsinki. There's interesting stuff in there. So yeah, so I'm, I'm what we were, what, what I was at least complaining about there, I guess, or grossing about, was like Ellie said, so there tends to be either Luther is the great, you know, liberator of women, because look at this great relationship he had with his wife, and that tends to be, so which I guess what, why I was like, this is a great chapter, we should, because that tends to be what we do here in you know, Lutheran circles, as you want to obviously present him in a good light and, you know, mm-hmm. by, by our standards today. Um, on the other hand, right, he does have all this other stuff. And so she does tend to focus in more on Luther, who for sure is, you know, women, he's a, he's a person of his times. Like, I'm pretty sure we should be saying that, right? He for sure is going to say women are not, you know, ontologically equal um, there, you know, and says things that are frankly offensive to us today. And, you know, I, would you know think we would for the most part not be on board with um so she does tend to give us a little bit more of that luther having said that there's also more of luther going on there and i think the idea that my impression was that she does tend to you know she's talking about well for luther you know women they're really reduced to their to their childbearing functions and things like this okay fair enough but and some sexual components, but you know, Luther also talks a lot about, or not maybe a lot, but in different places, according to some of this research about the importance of um, men and about men's sexuality and holiness and things like this, about this too, post-marriage. So you don't quite get some of that um, nuance in talking about him either, that it's not just that he is somehow reducing women to their um, sort of childbearing capacity and and mm-hmm. and things like this. He has some broader things to say that had there hasn't been a lot, I think, of, of work done on on some of those some of those areas. <clears throat> but and yeah, so that I guess would have been my major critique was that she's really honing in on the one side, which is not necessarily terrible because our side maybe hones in on the other side too much, and so we mm-hmm. need to hear that side. But at the same time, in the interest of giving a fuller picture of Luther, we do want to integrate those two and understand that there was development especially after his marriage and that there's a big difference between which for all of us right what we say in theory sometimes and how we live out things in practice mm-hmm. yeah and the guy i mean the guy i think literally never had a thought that he didn't write down 
Oh, and for sure. So, yeah. I mean, that's why they're us, still translating them. Yeah. Yeah, they're still translating. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think I think that chapter is helpful as um, as as Lutherans certainly because as, you know as Bethany noted, we tend to um, we, you know we tend to put that all in kind of very luminous light and um, think that everything was always awesome about every single aspect of the Reformation and um, to look at it in terms of how the Reformation impacted women and how it impacted women's communities. I know she had a thing in there too that I thought was really interesting about um, how how women lost their communities within each other because they were confined to the household now. So they were spending less time with other women and having those opportunities to have those friendships and that kind of support. Um, and which of course changes changes your well-being and changes a whole lot of other things in terms of how you interact with the world and where you get support from. Um, which was, um, you know, the comment about, you know, Katie dying completely impoverished is, you know, she's now kind of stripped of, now that she doesn't have a husband, stripped of, um, you know, any opportunity to kind of participate in the marketplace economically and to gain some um, advantage, even though we know that she was a woman that was fairly skilled at running this household and kind of trying to keep everything afloat, even though dear Martin wanted to give everything away all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to thank you both for being on. I had one, I think this would be a good closing uh, question. Um, and it's related to everything we've, the last couple, uh, things we've, we've, we've discussed. Um, you mentioned, uh, that quote bars work, uh, could benefit from greater attention to class analysis and the class bound nature of the cult of domesticity. Um, you know what can you kind of expand on that like what what um if we did explore that um or if she would have explored that like what are some great uh, not findings but just just why is it useful to 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 be mindful of that um because the book didn't really touch on that but there's um i guess how um i think it'd be a good good note to end on like what um what about that do you think would be very helpful in exploring because because like you said like um going into the modern period and then with industrialization i think uh, bethany mentioned that traditional economies um uh faded out and um where you perhaps saw more interchange of men doing and men and women doing there's a lot of overlap between what men and women did men, men of course still doing uh, specific things as opposed to specific things women did, but like, you know, it was just a different time. And so it's really the modern, um, the domesticization, the domestication, I guess, was brought on by, uh, by so much of the modern period. So yeah, I want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. I, I, pretty sure I wrote that line because I'm the modern like, that's, that's, that's Bethany's area. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> So I, I'm, I know actually what I was thinking was, and this is not so much a critique of her as it is like, wouldn't it be interesting if we could expand some of this into maybe a further project or something different, right? So I guess my thought was just, it would be interesting to think more about how class played into the development of this um, ideal of biblical womanhood, which really is more of a middle-class thing, right? Because like I think I said, if you're, you know, working class and at least pretty good, we're both 
primarily British historians. So if you're in that context, you know, if you're a working class person in like circa 1890, right, you're not, you, you, you have to go work, right? You don't have enough money to mm-hmm. possibly. Now, the ideal is to be able to be home, right? Because that's the ideal of respectability, but not everybody can like manage that and they have to scrimp by in some way. Uh, and so I just wonder, you know, if we follow that through into today, um, what does that, if we were to do today some kind of a, a more class analysis, looking at um, the, cult, the evangelical cult of biblical womanhood, would we find that this is more appealing among uh, middle-class women, upper-class women, right. uh, middle-upper-class women, um, just because they have the capacity to make this kind of thing work? To say, yep. think about it, like who can stay home these days to make this thing work? And if you can't, there's all this tension in your life, right? That you're not living up to this biblical ideal of womanhood, which is not to be out working, not to, uh, you know, doing the stuff, staying home, raising kids, which again, wonderful vocation, but that's an ideal. And if you're working class, then you can't do that necessarily, right? <laughs> because right. you're well, you've got to go and work. So does that mean, do we have then this rejection of these evangelical ideals about biblical womanhood? I mean, so another thing you could think about, and I'm not sure, I mean, it'd be interesting to look into somehow, look at the fall in, and maybe it's not, even, I'm not I don't know enough about American history to be able to say, but the you know rates of church participation among working class people is really low i mean people oftentimes think it's you know the upper class you know upper middle class people who are the ones who don't go to church or people with more education that's not true people with more education and more money tend to have higher rates for the most part of church attendance and belief than it's people who are lower class lower education who don't and they're probably work. They're probably working on Sunday morning. They're working, <laughs> on Sunday morning yeah. they're working you know. But I mean, it's, it's part of this that then you know you look at some of these ideals surrounding gender that yeah. are being sold and promoted in evangelical churches. Then is that just not appealing, right? Are people just not buying it? Right. And I guess right. I think one good thing that this book does that I would really want to maybe emphasize with as we close out is that it says to people, including in our own church body, who are importing these ideas, which I would argue are not confessionally Lutheran or biblical for that matter, that, you know, don't let that be a a reason to keep yourself away from Christ and from uh, his church, right? Uh Is that, you know, you don't have, there's not this ideal that you somehow have to be able to meet. This is a man-made construct, right? And I think she does a, a good job of showing the the history of that and getting out word of that i think is certainly a a good thing that she has done despite the differences the theological differences that we would have and some of the critiques that we would have um and so forth yeah yeah i mean i often say jesus makes us all different and that's no less true of women um there's tendency to kind of cookie cutter women and and kind of lock them into this 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 idea of you know kind of ideal womanhood and she certainly allows that freedom of you know exploring that what are your what are your gifts where do you want to where do you want to contribute how do you want to contribute zero wrong saying you know what i want to stay home and raise my kids um you know and i think you know bethany and i certainly would 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 have nothing negative to say about that but there's there's a switch that happens (laughs) there's a switch that happens when that becomes a mandate 
exactly. and um, and then there are people that are needlessly burdened um, either because they can't manage that financially um, and they have an expectation that the Lord will just provide um, somehow and um, so then there's a there's the, you know this wrestling with the Lord's provision um, to be able to do that or women who are just not cut out to you know stay home all day every day um, and and you know benefit from having having um, things to do outside the home. I mean, again, we're all individual adult humans and um, interact with our vocations differently. And it's, it's okay to do that um, in a way that doesn't harm our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. women are in fact humans, right? <laughs> we seem to know. And, uh, right. <laughs> of that position. Whatever blowback on this episode, whatever people want to say, we can all agree women are humans <laughs> you'd be surprised <laughs> i may be surprised but... that, will be the, that will be the line right there <laughs> it's gonna be you know somebody's gonna quote bethany kilkery says women are humans and then it's gonna blow up all it's gonna go we'll downhill just, we'll from just there. throw dorothy what a, sayers what at us yeah, yeah. Right, exactly just, uh, dorothy sayers like, yeah dorothy sayers <laughs> that raging feminist we had a Dorothy Sayers scholar on uh, oh. two episodes ago, but she came on and talked about C.S. Lewis. But the next time we get her on, Susan Bray, um, that that just, that's a sign. That's a sign from God. I'm, I'm not trying. Dorothy to Sayers is my girl. Not She's too. amazing. I mean, I mostly just like the mysteries. I'm not gonna lie. I've got a thing for <laughs> for British detective fiction, but also yeah. other good stuff she did. <laughs> yeah, her her sequence of plays on the. Um, Life of Christ are are remarkable. Not they're amazing. Those. They are amazing. Yeah. They're they're really beautiful. I have not read like any Dorothy Sayers, so I really have to. If I'm going to do that episode, I'm going to have to read a, do a lot of homework. So, um, but it sounds like fun homework for that. So, <laughs> just fun homework. Uh, that was that was a weird sidetrack. Sorry. No, it wasn't. No, it's got it's all good. Um, <laughs> Ellie and Bethany, thank you so much. Um, uh, for it will in our show notes, we'll put y'all's review of the making of biblical womanhood uh, by Beth Barr. We'll put a link to the book. We'll put a link to y'all's review, as well as a link to uh, to um, Lutheran Women on the Road, uh, the Substack that um, Bethany and Ellie both uh, regularly contribute to. <laughs> and uh, so, thank you so much for your time. And uh, God bless. And for our listeners, we look forward to having you tune in again.